Welcome to a special edition of Auto Line on the Road. This week, coming to you from the private garage of one of the most respected car executives in the industry, Bob Lutz. Join us as we take an exclusive look at his personal collection of priceless collector cars on Auto Line this week. Welcome to the special edition of Auto Line Live. I'm John McElroy, joined by my co-host here, Peter DeLorenzo from AutoExtremist.com. Great having you here, Peter. Always good to be here, John. This is a special show. Very special, because we're at Bob Lutz's place, one of the greatest automotive icons in the history of the automotive industry. And here he comes himself, Mr. Bob Lutz. Bob, thanks for bringing us out here or letting us come out here. How are you? John, (laughs) welcome. So, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. No Semi-retirement complaints. is agreeing with you? Yeah, yeah. I've, in fact, uh, I'm busy to the point where I wonder how I ever had time to work. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you're, you're comfortable out of the center of action like you were so much in your career. Well, I think that's true, you know, and I, I think uh, it's better to wear out than to rust out. And, and uh, we've all known too many people who retire at age 60 or 65, go to Florida and die on the back of their boat. You know, six months later, yeah. somebody says, oh, whatever happened to old Clarence? Oh, didn't you hear he died? You know, and God, he looked fine when he was still working. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway. Let's walk a bit here and yeah, sure. tell us about your place. I mean, well, this, this is, uh, is pretty uh, cool that you've got here. This was bought, the whole area was bought for not very much money in 1982. And it was uh, raw land. There was no hill. The hill that you see in behind the pond is basically what was dug out to create the pond. Uh, because this was, there's an agricultural drain that comes in from the west. And it was causing this whole area to be swampy. Mm-hmm. So... We asked the real estate guy, well, I don't mind buying the property, but I can't live by a swamp. And he said, well, that's no problem. You just get a guy with a, with a steam shovel, dig it all out, put it on the hill, and it'll cost you about, I don't know. I said, well, what would that cost you? I don't know, 35000 or something. That was a, that was a low-ball estimate. <laughs> but meanwhile, it's a very nice pond, and it, it looks natural now. This garage contains about 1,200 horsepower when you add it all up because uh, this is a ZR1. It's one of the first production special specimens, uh, 640 horsepower, and just a delightful, docile car to drive. I, I love the absence. Strange people say, well, don't you miss the V8 rumble? No, there's no V8 rumble in this. It's just silky quiet. All of the induction noise is soaked up by the forced induction system. And the gearbox is nice, the brakes are nice. It just, to me, this is one of the finest cars of any price I've ever driven. Huh. Just love it. Then the other two, uh, this is a very rare Pontiac Solstice. It I was, I was going to say, how many did they build of those? Eight? Uh, I think, no, about a, uh, a total of a thousand coupes, of which very few with the turbo engine and only four with the combination of turbo and manual transmission. So this is one of So you have a very rare piece I, It there. is a rare car. And interestingly enough, uh, a GM dealer up in up uh, near Milford owns another one. So between us, we have 50% of the, <laughs> of the, of the ones. And they have a Monteverde? Monteverde, yes. Um, a Swiss car with Italian coachwork over um, a, a Chrysler 440 wedge. 
There were about 70 of these built. This is a 1971 specimen. What attracted you to this car, other than it was built in Switzerland, yeah, which that, is where that, you were born? Yeah, that, that, but that didn't factor in. I, I saw this, this very car um, at the Geneva show in 19, in the, well, March of 1971, and I was just stunned by it. Because if you put this car in the context of 1971... Uh, it's a rocket ship. Well, the proportion yeah. Yeah. and... Uh, the detailing, everything. Now there's some things on it that look dated. You know, you'd, today you'd move the wheels farther out to the edge of the body. I mean, but all of the cars of that era, even Ferraris, everybody had the wheels tucked. Look at an E-type Jaguar, how ridiculous they look now. And, and I used to think, oh God, an E-type Jaguar, most beautiful car ever built. Now, now if I had one, I think I'd put spacers in and move the wheels out. <laughs> anyway, but, and it's got a beautiful interior and uh, with the, uh, Chrysler 440 wedge and uh, the three-speed torque flight driving through a, a Jaguar independent rear end, uh, four-wheel disc brakes with the dual circuit brake system, all of the, you know, the, the modern conveniences of the early 70s. Yeah. Uh, it's a nice car to drive. Air conditioning works and it's, it's nice. Beautiful color too. That well, that, it was... Uh, it had been sitting in a field for about 30 years when I found it, and it, went, it was a metallic silver blue uh, that was clearly beyond repair, and I, I decided I wanted midnight blue with the light tan, light tan Connolly leather. Yeah. <clears throat> what I find uh, about it is such a low cowl and belt line and yeah. thin A-pillars, something that I don't think we'll ever see again, or well, not for yeah, a long because, time. Because there's so many elements here that would no longer pass any sort of federal regulation either here or in Europe. Look at the roof crush with those yeah. A pillars that look like toothpicks and and all that glass and the thin roof and so forth. So How did you pick the color, Bob? Where, where'd you, what, what midnight blue is it? Do you remember? I don't know whose it is, um, but it was when the restorer just showed me chips and I said this one. You know. Yeah. But it's going to the um, Hilton Head Concours in a little while. Oh. They, 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 uh, I think I'm chief judge or honorary chief judge or chief marshal or something, and they asked me to bring a car, and I gave them a choice, and they wanted this. Sure, because this is so rare. Yeah, it is rare. And this, this is one where, you know, uh, what's his name from Car Market Newsletter? Or Keith Martin. Keith Martin. Um, congratulated me on the purchase and said, congratulations, you've just bought a car which someday will be worth $20,000 and you're going to spend 200000 on the restoration. <laughs> I couldn't argue with them at the time. I just said, well, I, they're now not naturally uh, well over that joking figure that he cited. And then you've got but, some... You know, even the wheels still look pretty. They're small, but it's it's still a, a decent a decent alloy wheel pattern, I think. And again, you know, considering the age of the car, that yeah. would have been bleeding edge in its day. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then I, I just love the way the upper comes down. Uh, it's actually very similar to the Ferrari coupes at the time. Same designers, you know. The body was done by Fisori in Italy. But I love the way the little extraction vents uh, are, are a continuation of the quarter window. A mm -hmm. lot of nice detail out mm -hmm. This uh, car is a 34 LaSalle, 
and it's identical to the first car that I have a conscious memory of when my parents in Scars, no, in Rye, no, Ridgewood, New Jersey. My dad was working for Credit Suisse at the time in 1934. I was obviously two years old and they, sort of, you know, at the height of the depression, my dad was happily, fortunately for the family, doing okay. So he showed up one evening with a, a, a LaSalle convertible. And I remember taking long trips in this, standing up on the seat, naturally. And this one's got a, a mother-in-law seat, right? Isn't well, that what the steps a, are for rumble, on the side? Rumble seat. Yeah, we're, you had the three steps. This is step one, step two, step three. And then the you'd step in, and it's richly upholstered, you know, in drunken parties. After, after a, a night of partying, they'd put four or five people back in here and <laughs> three or four in the front. Well, you got to be really... Uh, have your wits about you to go up these steps. Yeah, right. That's, that's the test right there. Yeah. If you can get in, you're okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is one of the original, if you put this in the context of what other cars looked like in 1934, remember, you know, the, the, the full black fenders, the upright grills, I mean, think of a 34 Ford or, or 34 European cars, I mean, they were still square boxes. And this was one of the first efforts at streamlining. It's actually a Harley Earl car. And uh, it's all the lovely Art Deco elements like the little chevrons, the, the biplane bumper, uh, those little air extractors. Wasn't this, I, this was Harley Earl's claim to fame, right? Yeah, this, I think so, yeah. This mm -hmm. is uh, his first when they created the art and color section at General Motors That's right, yeah. for Harley. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean this this thing knocked people's socks off. Well, this was a sub-brander Cadillac. It was it was a, it was a very clever thing to do, because uh, during the Depression, um, people weren't buying Cadillacs, so they used LaSalle as a discount brand, and they were able to basically build Cadillacs with LaSalle grills and LaSalle badges and discount them heavily and let the Cadillac volume shrink so that the Cadillac image was never at, and Packard didn't do that. Packard went down market with the whole line, did great volume for a while, but they lost their, lost their premium image and disappeared. Um, so it worked for a while. I think it was, it was probably right to drop it after the war. There was uh, plenty of demand for Cadillacs. There was no need for the discount brand anymore. I love uh, the touches that you were talking about because they're so Art Deco. Yeah, it is a total in the inside and out. Even the door trim panels. Uh, we, if you come over here, we'll show you the door door trim panels. The way these are handled. This is all in lovely Art Deco. The ashtrays, everything, everything is consistent. You know, it was a consistent design theme throughout the car. And it runs well, starts easily, and it's a nice, silky, smooth, straight eight. That's the best thing not, about an old car, is when it starts and runs yeah, well. not much, uh, well, I, in one mechanical ad that I have put in, almost all of them, is uh, uh, electric fuel pumps, so that you don't have that long crank time to get fuel from the tank up to, uh, so you run the electric pump for about 10 seconds, and then they start right away. This is a 41 Chrysler, which again I remember from my youth. This is when my dad bought one of these in 1940, albeit not a Windsor. Uh, he bought a New Yorker. And 
you could tell from the outside because back in those days when you bought the eight instead of the six, you got a longer hood. Uh. Nowadays, you just put the long hood on everything and on some of the cars it'd be mostly empty, but not then, they did. The Royals and the Windsors had the short hood with the six cylinder engine. The Saratogas, New Yorkers and Imperials had the long hood with the, uh, with the, with the straight A. Was the Windsor, was this made in Windsor, Canada, no, or was no, that just, was just a name? just a series name. It was just a series name. And uh, it's, it's, it's uh, an early automatic in the sense that it's got fluid drive. So you can, once you're going, you can drive clutchless, and you can accelerate from a stop in high gear um, if you and the people behind you are very patient. I think it was um, probably inspired by the fact that Briggs Cunningham with the race cars was getting a reliable 300 horsepower out of the, out of the 331 Hemi engine. And since Chrysler engine engineers had done most of the work for Cunningham on getting the engine up to that power level, they decided, and, and uh, uh, Ford had done the Thunderbird and GM had done the Corvette and Chrysler had nothing and couldn't afford anything. So what they did, they literally decided what the car would be and it's a blend of um, New Yorker regular line and blended with uh, Imperial stuff. So the grill is Imperial with the, with the two sections. The badging is specific 300 and the rest of the car in terms of ornamentation and trim was a, a blend between low series and imperial and the, the way they did, the guys at Chrysler told me, the way they did the first prototype was the senior engineers walked down the line with the car and said, no, no, that grill, no, no, that, that yeah, get the imperial one, yeah, that goes on here. God, I wish we could build cars those these yeah, days. Yeah. And then so, you got some serious motorcycle. Yeah, oh, okay, it's, it's, wait, we're not done with the, uh, well, the 300 it is, yet. It is even today a very fast car, but like all American cars of the era, it's you transform the handling by putting modern steel-belted radials on because the old bias ply tires, this, this thing would, I mean, two lanes wasn't enough at 70 miles an hour. But with the modern, um, this I think this has Avon turbo speeds on it. Um, and a steel belted radial, it goes down the road absolutely straight and is a, a very nice long distance touring car. Yeah, the bikes, uh, this is- Serious motorcycles. Yeah, that, that, that was my, um, it's not the same one, but I had one of these when I was in high school in Switzerland. And Switzerland at that point was a non-motorized society in the 50s, unlike the US where kids had cars. In Switzerland, kids had bicycles. And I was one of the only ones with a motorcycle. And, the reason for this is that um, my parents limited me to 125cc, so I bought a sports racing, barely street legal Italian 125 that had more horsepower than all of the 250s of the, of the period. And um, had a lot of fun with it. It's two-stroke twin with uh, really a wailing exhaust note when it's in full cry because they're glass pack mufflers so they're basically unrestricted. This is, um, yeah, this is yeah, this is the HP2. Um, everything you look at is authentic carbon fiber, magnesium, aluminum, and so forth. So it's ultra lightweight. Um, it's only a, 
only about 140 horsepower, but uh, the bike is light, it's beautifully balanced, the engine of course sits very low, the handling on it is just brilliant. That's a very nice bike to ride. This is um, a K1200S, which is BMW's first transverse four-cylinder twin cam uh, to where they have to take the drive around the corner twice, which is why they, you know, MV Augusta back in the old days were the only ones that ever did that. And it requires very precise machining because otherwise you, you get the tolerance build up, you get um, driveline clunk. But, but because you, you really don't want to take the drive around right angles more than once. But they did it here successfully, and it's, a, again, a great bike to ride. And one thing, too, i got to get you to talk about. Yeah. you got bikes in the garage I never expected to see. you got well, bicycles in well, here. Well, that's because in my youth, uh, being up until age 18, prevented from riding motor vehicles in Switzerland, I, I was a bicycle racer. And then I continued for quite a long time. That's uh, that rally is made by the Rally Racing Department in the UK. Uh, I've got a Greg Lamont that's that red, white, and blue one. Um, in fact, Chris Proust, as you know, is a big bicycle racing aficionado, and he told me he looked. He said there is more value on that wall than you realize. So, <laughs> and, and I'm glad to see that. You know times of extreme hardship, there's some things I could pedal. And back there is, this is a K1, that was a very rare BMW, the blue one. It was BMW's first attempt at doing something other than their conventional touring bikes and to sort of put some excitement in the line. Didn't work real well and it was very expensive. The yellow and gray one is a, a, a K1200RS, basically sports touring. I'd, I'd say more touring than sports, but um, corners very well. Now this is one of the world's most capable, uh, you want to call it a, a, a 16 passenger sport utility if you want, or 16 passenger convertible if you take the top off. But it was for many, many decades uh, the number one NATO um, personnel carrier. They also made a six-wheel version with dual rear axles that were command cars, ambulance, field ambulances, and so forth. It is the whole top part comes off, windshield comes off, tops of doors come off, so that it is helicopter transportable. Um, it's a uh, a 2.4 liter air-cooled four-cylinder engine. Um, it's all coilover, uh, coilover suspension system, uh, torque tube, there's no chassis, there's torque tube, um, and uh, there's a hub reduction, so the drive goes in at the top of the wheel, and then there's a gear train, and the, the actual actual shaft comes out So tremendous bottom. ground clearance. Oh, I mean, this will go, frankly, uh, this should be labeled an H1, Hummer H1 recovery vehicle, which uh, which it truly is. And, and, Where were they made? In, in Austria by Steyr. Uh huh. And, uh, and this, these were the Swiss Army ones, and uh, that's the Swiss running condition, Swiss, right? Hmm? That's running condition. This oh, one. Oh yeah, it's, it's only got what twelve thousand miles total on it, and the Swiss Army didn't use them much, and they maintained them immaculately. I mean, getting one from the Swiss Army was like buying a new vehicle. 
this is one of these, I, I won't try to pet, tonight I will not be selling this to you, this car is an authentic 1952 Cunningham. It's a... It's a continuation. It's a continuation, I think it was Larry Black did those at, at Cunningham and, and uh, it's uh, absolutely authentic in every detail. And you've got a special part in your heart, I think, for Cunningham, right? I mean, I, I, I've not, I learned more from you about, about Cunningham yeah, than anywhere I else. I don't, I don't know why I... Well, one of the reasons was uh, one of my father's banking associates uh, was um, a gentleman named Moran, who was uh, um, one of the gentleman drivers on the Cunningham team and competed in Le Mans and uh, sent me a, a nice... 5 by 8 glossy, which he had signed with him driving as actually a C4RK, which was the coupe. Um, and I, I always developed, because you have to remember, um, up and through the 50s, if you were a car fan in Europe, American cars were an embarrassment because they couldn't go around corners. The engines blew up on the, the engines blew up on the Autobahn. They couldn't stop. They wouldn't steer. Uh, the efforts at competing in European racing, if it wasn't a hill climb where power would overwhelm the other deficiencies, American cars were ridiculed. And then suddenly, Cunningham shows up one year with a specially prepared Cadillac coupe and did amazingly well. And then a year later, he started showing up with these. Well, first he showed up with the C2. Uh, then, of course, the C3 coupe was so, but then he, then he came with the C4s and almost won. Uh, the only reason, that was the year that Duncan Hamilton won in the uh, D-type Jags. These were actually quicker on the Mulsanne straight, they'd leave the Jags behind. The problem was drum brakes, and the Jags had the first generation disc, disc brakes. brakes yeah. And I, I said to... Um, and in the rain, the Jags would just, you know, yeah. the braking performance. I, I said to Hamilton's son, whose name is Adrian Hamilton, he's a vintage car dealer in London, I said, you know, Cunningham would have beaten your father except for the brakes. And he says, yes, I know, but my dad did win. <laughs> 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 they don't ask how you won, they just ask if you won. Well, yeah. It's got the beautiful Halbram wheels, just, just gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, the, the, these are reproduction too, yeah, but, but so what? I, I got the repro kidney bean Halbrams on the C3 as well. Uh, this car is, um, this is a 331 Hemi, but using parts and materials that they didn't have in the 50s. So this is uh, 400 horsepower instead of 300. And what's it weigh? Just over 2,000 pounds. So, uh, and if there's no trim, there's no carpets, there's no door handles, there's no window winders, there's nothing. No, no windshield wipers. I mean, this car is bare bones. So 400 horsepower with uh, five and a half liters worth of torque. Um, 2,200 pounds and a skinny R1 <laughs> vintage racing tires where the rubber has turned a little bit hard. With the 50s the, uh, steering yeah. wheel driving position too. Yeah, the, the first, that was done for one of the American team drivers who was a sprint car driver. Yeah. And he didn't like the vertical wheel. He said, I'm used to, I'm, I can only steer if the wheel is kind of like a lazy Susan in front of me. <laughs> And they said, well, how do they do that? And they said, well, they put a U-joint in, so they did one, and everybody liked it. So, 
So you're talking, what, five and a half pounds per horsepower, right? Yeah. If I do my math right. So that's that's supercar territory. Oh, absolutely. Um, except it can't it can't get the power to the ground because of the small the contact patch. Yeah. But uh, you do even an, even shifting from second into third before the tires are warm. You have to be careful with this because there's no stability control system or anything when the back end goes. There's no little electronic genii that get you get it lined up again for you. So, an Aston. Yeah, this is a DB2. It was my, my dad's car. He ordered it for me. You mean, actually, this, this, this very this, one, this, not this, the model, this, this one. This very one was my dad's How'd car. How'd you track that down? I didn't. I, I found it by accident. I took a good friend of mine to, to an Aston Martin restorer in Switzerland because he had to pick up his DB4. And then I saw this disassembled in a horrible, like, spray can metallic green and somebody had put a Corvette style, a, a 64 style Corvette rear window, you know, one piece wraparound like, like the split window, but no split. And the car was an abortion. And I said, well, Jesus, what a shame. My dad had a DB2 and he said, oh, really? And I said, yeah, but his was blue. And he showed me the inside of the hood and it was blue. And then I said, yeah, but my dad's had, um, these specially made spring steel bumpers that he had installed at the factory because he didn't like the fact of parking it with no bumpers. And the guy reaches into a box and pulls out these bumpers. Then I said, yeah, but my dad's also had a specially crafted aluminum drop box under the pedal because my dad had big feet and, and his toes were fouling the steering and the wiring and everything. And he reaches into another box and said, the box somewhat like this. Then we went and checked, he got the file out and opened the file. Sure enough, there was the original build order made out to Herr General Director Robert Halutz, H, H instead of A. Well, look, it's been great having you take us around your garage and show us all your collection. We need to get, a, get you back in the studio at some point, sure, and we'll absolutely. just talk yeah. about your new book and yeah, might, more about what you see might going be on. Over a year, you know, before they finally publish, but I'll come in okay. any, any old time. Cool. Well, yeah. Thanks, Bob. Yeah. yeah good to Peter, see you. Always, always good to see you. Yeah. Bob, thanks so Bob, much. Thanks uh, so much. It's really cool seeing all these cars.